As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Late night, midnight on the interstate. Welcome back to Straight from the Source with Michael Russo. Uh, very, very happy to be joined by the new so CEO great. and the president of the American Hockey League. He became that. Uh, yesterday, after maybe the longest onboarding ever, Scott Housen, uh, you have to be just excited to officially have the keys handed over to you after uh, really about five, six months of knowing that you were getting this job. Yeah, I think I got the job officially sometime in February. I was supposed to start May 1, but with uh, hockey basically shutting down uh, in the middle of March, and uh, the I worked for the Oilers at the time, and and they basically shut down. So I got an early start on this. It's not the way we envisioned it. Certainly not the way I wanted to start, and and more so not the way I wanted Dave Andrews to end. Um, but the good the good news is Dave's going to be around. He's going to lead our return to play task force, and he's uh, under contract as sort of an advisor to the American League for the next three years. And uh, you can bet I'm going to be seeking his advice. Uh, yeah, and uh, about a month ago, I did a, a joint Zoom with you and Dave Andrews uh, for an interview for a story that I did this week on The Athletic, and I think that was in uh, yesterday's uh, The Athletic as well. So I highly recommend people reading that. And, you know, 26 years on the job, he really uh, turned what was a regional um, minor league to a the chief development league of the of the National Hockey League, thirty one teams, soon to be thirty two, twenty affiliated with the or owned by National Hockey League. What is the legacy that Dave Andrews leaves? Well, it's just huge. You can't. I mean, you measure it in miles and miles. Uh, some of the steps he took were were quite uh, risky. Maybe at the time he he implemented the development rule in the AHL, which essentially meant you had to dress so many players that had uh, 
uh, around 260 games less experience or experience in pro hockey. So um, that was a risk uh, and that was all aimed at trying to be more attractive to the NHL teams and to get them to send their players there. And, and then the risk of bringing in the six IHL teams that he did in, in 2001. And, and the other thing he did was uh, he implemented a, a visor rule. Uh, and people probably don't remember that, but uh, he implemented a visor rule that all players had to wear visors. I don't know. I can't remember the year it was, but no grandfathering, no, no anything. So that was, you know, that was ahead of the game too. And now, it's almost it's it's very very strange if we ever see a player not playing with one. So uh, so there's so many things he did the Pacific Division uh, expansion that was uh, critical to uh, expanding the AHL's footprint and bringing in some of those uh, West Coast teams that wanted to have their AHL teams closer. Uh, I mean, there's there's so much he did for this league, and uh, uh, there there I can't think of many commissioners or presidents, Mike, that has have that have had an impact as big an impact on a league, on any professional sports league as he has had. And, uh, and uh, it, it's, uh, it, as I said before, it's, it's too bad we couldn't salute him the right way, but I'm sure we will find something to do once we get yeah. back to normalcy and give him his proper and credit. And obviously, I mean, it's just a total class act. And again, we're, we're talking with Scott Housen, new uh, chief executive officer and president of the American Hockey League. Uh, Scott, you've done it all on hockey. Uh, you know, as I wrote in my story, you have the rare distinction of scoring a goal in your first four NHL shots uh, for the New York Islanders, my Islanders, um, back in the mid-80s when uh, Al Arbor was coaching you. Um, 57 goals in your last year of junior, 57 goals in your first year as a professional 100-point seasons in the International Hockey League. Um, and then you go on, you become, uh, you go, you're hired, you go back to school, get your law degree, eventually hired in Edmonton, uh, run two AHL franchises there, uh, then become assistant GM, go on to Columbus to become the GM, and then go back to Edmonton where you did about every single job. So it's, it feels like you were, you've done about everything you possibly could do in hockey to build for this job. Yeah, I, and I said that to the search committee uh, that w when I interviewed. We I interviewed uh, twice with the search committee, and then once with a smaller group with the search committee. And I said, I feel like I've been preparing for this job my whole life. If you look at, you know, playing junior hockey, getting my lottery, becoming a lawyer. I did practice law for almost two years, and then uh, and I played in the AHL before that, and then uh, running two AHL teams for the Oilers in in two different cities, and then moving on to the Blue Jackets and being affiliated with uh, with two independent owners, uh, so non-NHL owners in two different cities. And and uh, doing, uh, as you said, I've since I went back to the Oilers in 2013, I've, I've done a, a many roles, varied roles. And so it seemed like I was preparing for this and and I, I was certainly intrigued by it. The, the process was thorough and time-consuming, and uh, and I was glad I was the last man standing. Um, as you mentioned, Dave Andrews, I mean, it's just a shame the way that he went out. As he said to me in that story, a quiet ride into the sunset. I mean, to not be able to present the Calder Cup for one final time, to not have a retirement party, to not kind of have that final send-off in Hilton Head that you all planned for him with his family there. Um, how how big of a shame was that? And, and as you mentioned, I mean, do you, you feel like that there will be um, you know, something that you guys will do whenever the next season uh, occurs. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm certainly that will be our intention to to honor his his tenure here in in the proper way. He had a big. I know he had a big celebration planned. I think I'm not sure the date. It was probably 
April where he was uh, going to have a big night in Springfield and he was going to fly, you know, um, half a dozen or a dozen uh, uh, former employees in and they were going to have a big celebration and lots of laughs. And, and uh, unfortunately, we, we, he couldn't do that. And uh, we did have, we did have a, appropriate to the times, so we did have a Zoom <laughs> call with him on, uh, on, on his last day at 4 p.m. And I think he was kind of reluctant to do it, he told me. And then and we had about five or six former employees uh, jump on with him. And, and man, that was great. Uh, he was laughing a lot. And, and what I'm sure was a very difficult and emotional day. And, uh, and at least he got to share some laughs. At, at near yeah, the such end a weird it. way. And then, uh, you know, the fact that, again, you were going to job shadow him essentially throughout the month of, month of May. Um, find a place to live, go to the Calder Cup finals with them throughout the playoffs and things like that. And, and you still haven't even been to Springfield uh, to find a place to live for you and your wife. Yeah, it's, it's been strange for sure. And it's not the way we drew it up, but uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's the least of the challenges that uh, everybody's facing in these times. And this was one thing and, and, and obviously trying to navigate, as, as start, starting the season through this, uh, through these difficult and turbulent times, but uh, uh, we'll we'll be ready when when uh, when it's the appropriate time. And uh, and it wasn't the way we drew it up. I was looking forward to spending those two months with them. And you know, the first month was basically going to be in the office and just going through all the normal, uh, you know, transactional normal course of business stuff that he comes across comes across his desk. And then it was going to be June on the road. We had the Calder Cup finals. We had. Uh, meetings with our players association. We had our business meetings in Tucson and we were thinking about going to the draft, uh, in Montreal and, and, uh, you know, so much yeah, for those plans. And, uh, a lot of teams and players obviously disappointed too, because as you know, Scott, you know, well, uh, you know, being a, a minor league star, um, minor league teams never return as the exact same team. And, uh, you know, as Minnesota wild fans know, well, the Iowa wild, uh, had a real good you know, chance to, to go on potentially a Calder cup run. And that's also got to be the most disappointing thing here from a lot of uh, players standpoints is that they never got to see where the chapter would end. Yeah. I, I, I've, I've been reaching out to all the teams here uh, and trying to reach out to all of them here in the next uh, three or four days. And, and the ones that I have talked to, uh, I have talked to anybody from Iowa. Yeah. I've talked to the people in Belleville and, you know, there were, I guess there were six or seven teams that you could say hockey's full of surprises, but the six or seven in Iowa was one of them that you could say had a legitimate and then, and that gets uh, just stripped from them. And that's, it was disappointing. So, uh, so a lot of disappointed people, but uh, again, um, a lot worse off people in the world right now too. When you talk to Tim Army, you might not be able to get him off the phone. Have you, have you ever had a conversation with Tim? I've met him. I haven't had a lengthy conversation no, with him. Yeah, yeah. You will. It will be lengthy. Uh, he, he's one of the most talkative people that you've ever met. Um, yeah, Scott. Let me let me ask you. I mean, how how stressful of a situation will this be to navigate through right now? As you've said many times, um, you're going to have to be flexible and nimble. You're going to have to. You know, we nobody knows what tomorrow is going to bring in this type of pandemic. Um, what is going on right now in the American Hockey League uh, to essentially plan for what next season may look like. Yeah, and it's frustrating for everybody, uh, you know, at our micro level here in the hockey world, in the sports world, because nobody has any answers yet. I mean, I, I, and the teams I'm talking to, they're saying to me, well, well, what do you think of this? And how much notice are we going to get? And, 
and what can we plan? And we've got employees that are with us now. And are, are they going to be, you know, are we going to need them in, in September, October? And there are, the frustrating thing, Mike, right now is you just can't provide a clear answer. Um, right now, our schedule made, makers are, are going through the normal process. We're building a schedule that's starting a full schedule uh, that's 76 games and 68 for the teams in the Pacific Division and, and starting October 9th and running through the middle of April. And, uh, and we have to be prepared. I mean, uh, you, you know, it's not, it's not looking great right now that we're going to start in October, but there's, there's still a chance. And, uh, you know, there was probably a greater chance two or three weeks ago, but given what's happened with, uh, with, with the virus the last two or three weeks, it's not encouraging, but we'll be ready. And, uh, and we'll make the decision, um, that, uh, that we are a go or we aren't a go come October 9th. And we'll have to decide that well before that. I, I can't give you a date when we're going to decide. And then, uh, and then our schedule makers will be pivoting to no, a November start and then uh, a December start and then a January start. And the interesting thing, when we did our survey uh, of the teams about a month ago, uh, some even suggested a February start they'd be interested in. So um, like you said, we're going to be flexible and we're going to try and give our fans and our stakeholders and our teams and our players as much notice as we can, but it's going to be uh, difficult to navigate through these, uh, through these turbulent times. As I mentioned, uh, 19 of your 31 teams are owned by NHL franchises. Um, the others independently owned, um, but all teams. It doesn't matter if you're owned by the NHL or, or, or not. The reality is is that uh, it's, it's hard to operate a franchise if you've got no revenue, no fans coming in, and, and things like that, corporate sponsors. Is, if there is no chance of fans being in the building in October, November, can you guys start? I think that would be unlikely with zero fans. I think there might be uh, some teams that maybe are interested in playing some games uh, instead of having, I mean, if you go, if you think about it, mo other than the NHL players, and now we're going to have some, uh, you know, some practice squad players uh, from the AHL training with them here as they, as they start their training camps. But most players, AHL players, or even junior players and college players won't have played since March. And so I'm sure there are going to be some teams, uh, some NHL teams that will want their prospects to be playing, even with no fans. And we'll just have to, again, flexibility, and we'll have to work around that and see if there's interest and see what we can do to support that. But if I, I cannot see us playing a full league schedule with all of our teams if we can't have any fans in the building at this point in October and November. And that's got to create an immense amount of stress for not only National Hockey League general managers, but players, right? I mean, it's not just top prospects that rely on the American Hockey League as a place to play. It's it's uh, AHL veterans. It's people that maybe still have a dream of getting to the NHL, maybe people who've seen that dream past. Um, if, if there's no place for them to play or they don't know, do you, do you see some players maybe looking for options in Europe? I think that's possible. And and you you talk about players, but, I mean, we have – uh, over 200 or 300 officials too that aren't going to yeah. have any work either. So, and and a lot of those are training to get to the NHL and and uh, the coaches and the assistant coaches and and the minor league executives and and uh, whatnot. So, um, I, I to answer your question, I I, I think if if uh, my my understanding is, although I, obviously I don't know for sure, is that European teams uh, play leagues are deciding uh, that they're going to play right away. So, I think. I think you might even see some some NHL teams assign their players over there just 
because mm-hmm. they're more certain to play and start in September or October. And we're seeing that right now with the Minnesota Wild. I talked to Bill Guerin on the radio this morning, and he's uh, looking like he's going to assign one of his top prospects, Alex Hovanoff, to uh, the Continental Hockey League. We're talking with Scott Housen, the new president of the American League, uh, former GM of the Columbus Blue Jackets, has done about every single job in the Edmonton uh, Oilers organization and uh, has run AHL franchises, uh, four different ones as well, and of course was a junior and a minor league star. Uh, and again, you're listening to Straight from the Source. To subscribe to The Athletic, by the way, theathletic.com slash straight from the source. And to uh, advertise on The Athletic podcast, you can go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads and uh, fill out a brief survey, and uh, and they'll get back to you there. Um, Scott, you know, the, the one thing also, as we were just talking about the, the return to play protocols and things like that is is when it comes to um, schedule making and things like that, you know, how involved are you there if they're all of a sudden, I guess the one way to ask this question is, is could you see a scenario where maybe not 31 teams are playing that 20 teams are playing and that you might even have to combine teams next season? Yeah, I think anything's possible at this stage, Mike. I think, uh, you know, there might be some teams that just decide that they, uh, you know, we will. It, it, in the worst case, you keep pushing it. You push, push it, push it to November, to December and January. And maybe, maybe there's some teams that just say, you know, it's not. It just doesn't make sense for us. We're not assured of having people in the buildings, and we don't want to risk it. And uh, but there's some teams that want to do that. And and like you say, maybe there's some NHL teams that are going to combine their players. Uh, we haven't seen a split affiliation in a long time. So. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I think, I think those are all things that I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, that the split affiliations will work because I think if one, who, who are you going to choose to put on your team? Are you going to tell the 27 year old captain defenseman that, um, you know, he, there's no place for him to play this year. We're going to play. I mean, those things all get complicated and obviously uh, that's just one of the complications you go through. But to answer your question, yes, I can see uh, us having a, a smaller league uh, for the, 2021 season and some teams not playing perhaps if we get there it's not my hope my hope is that um, everyone's going to participate but again the word flexibility comes back and we'll have to we'll have to you know design it and implement it uh, uh, as it goes and and that's one of the challenges that our schedule makers are going to have because we can't just now draw up a december schedule because we don't know if there's 31 teams or 26 or 24 or 18 we just don't know and uh we do know that on october 9th we're going to schedule to we'll be scheduled to play with 31 and then we'll have to improvise improvise from there and travel is going to be really interesting for your teams too i mean there are guys there are teams that have to get on planes and um you know even though it's it's considered a still a bus league all teams really at some point got to get on a plane and and that brings up its own challenges right yeah i mean we do have some teams such as texas or manitoba and Charlotte to a certain extent that uh, that of the bulk of their travel and the teams visiting those those uh, centers are are air travel so those are things that we're going to have to keep an eye on and and uh, you know perhaps it's a more regional schedule I don't know we'll have to just I mean, again we'll have to just see what what the world looks like and how we're going to cope with it and uh, but all those things are possible and and we'll be ready when uh, when the time comes. One of the most fascinating things that we've talked about, Scott, is uh, 
is that there could come a scenario if you're not playing until midseason that in October or November, teams will want their players playing somewhere or doing some sort of activity on the ice and could maybe have regional tournaments. Uh, it's very similar to prospect tournaments that we see in the, you know, right before training camp or development camp and things like that. Um, that that brings up a whole host of other issues because uh, you got to make sure that these teams can come together, that they're going to be safe, that they're going to be tested, that you'll have officials there. Uh, have you begun even uh, contemplating that, or is that still way off uh, in the decision-making process? It's still way off, but we have to be ready. Like, we've, we've got to think about if, if that's the case um, and where are they going to play? Are they going to play in their main arenas? Maybe not. Maybe they're going to play in practice rings because there's no fans. And then we've got to think about are the, are the practice rings compliant with all of the, you know, the, the glass and the... the um, the other requirements that are needed for the for the player safety, the netting, even though there's going to be no fans, and we've got we just got to make sure that all those rinks are compliant. So we've started to think about the issues that we're that we're going to have to uh, be ready to decide on, and then and then obviously if if we do go that route, um, then uh, it's it we'll provide the support and the off ice discipline and the refereeing and all that we've got to be ready for. So uh, a lot to think about and a lot to plan for. <laughs> It's crazy. And then I'm sure testing and and what it's going to be like for fans, even when they come back as well. That's all stuff that you're putting into place now, too, with your with health authorities and and arena staff. Yeah, I think the teams are right now. The teams are taking the lead on what do I have to do to make sure that we're going to be safe for our fans and whether that's, you know, different exit points, different entrance points, uh, touchless stuff, touchless things in the in the um in, in the washrooms, touchless, uh, in the concession stands, all those things the teams are, are, are thinking about. And, and then obviously we've got to, de- we've got to decide on the, on the health and safety. And one, one of the benefits we're going to have is, as you know, the NHL is going to have gone through this, hopefully from start to completion here in the next uh, three or four months. So we'll be able to learn and, and feed off that. And, and like you said, we, we have a strong connection to the NHL. 19 of our teams are owned uh, by uh, by NHL clubs, so we'll be able to hopefully piggyback on some of those health and sa- health and safety protocols that they've established. And do do you have to be in lockstep with them? So if the NHL starts in December or January, that you have to, or you could conceivably start earlier if it's at all feasible. Yeah, I, 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 we're separate leagues, so we don't have to start at the same time. And in fact, I think I would think that there might be some NHL teams that would see a benefit to having, uh, you know, let's say the NHL doesn't start till December 15th. And if they could get their AHL kids up and playing by, by November 15th, that might be a benefit to them. Um, but that's all, you know, and then I think there are some teams and I, in fact, I know there are some teams that want us to start at the same time the NHL does. So that's all to be determined and, and, uh, nothing's decided on that front yet. But to answer your question, we are separate and we could start at a different time. Uh, we're talking to Scott Housen, the new president and CEO of the American Hockey League during a very busy week. So, Scott, really thank you for joining me. Uh, again, uh, to subscribe to The Athletic, theathletic.com slash straight from the source will get you in for 40% off. Podcast throughout our site as well. Uh, Frank Saravelli, the uh, hockey analyst on TSN, joined Scott Burnside and Pierre Lebrun on a two-man advantage this week. Uh, so highly recommend listening to that. And Scott Wheeler, the national reporter covering the NHL draft and prospects for The Athletic, joins Craig Custance. And I had Custance on my radio show 
episode today, and he talked a lot about that interview and how they even brought up that this new uh, odd draft lottery might benefit a team like Minnesota if they lose in the in in the qualifying round here of this upcoming tournament. Uh, Scott, putting on your old hat of being an NHL employee, man, that that was a, a weird week last week with the draft lottery, and all of a sudden. Uh, it being told that the number one overall pick is going to go to a team that that uh, is still potentially alive. Yeah, that was weird, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's not not the way the NHL hoped it would um, end. But that's that's the reality of all of it. All they certainly knew that was a possibility, and uh, it it adds more intrigue. It adds more interest. Um, it's and I think you know there's going to be eight markets, Mike, that are going to have. Big hope after they maybe are disappointed of losing a playoff round that uh, you've got a one in eight chance of getting uh, the prize, and that's that's almost a once in a lifetime uh, occurrence there. So yeah, no doubt about it, and uh, it puts a little conflicted uh, thoughts in uh, fans' heads. Who uh, was like, yeah, maybe you know what? If we have no chance of going and actually winning a cup, maybe it wouldn't be so bad to lose in the qualifying round. Uh, Scott, uh, you are uh, as I mentioned, you've been working for you, you're based in Columbus, but you were working for the Oilers for many, many, many years. Uh, you know Edmonton extremely well. Um, the Hub City uh, is not only going to be in uh, Edmonton for the Western Conference, uh, or most likely as long as the players ratify the CBA and return to play protocols um, for up to two months, but it looks like the Conference Final and the Stanley Cup Final will be in Edmonton if things uh, don't calm down in the States and they, uh, they actually eventually move uh, these games to the cities of the teams that are involved. Um, what, what can the fans expect in Edmonton uh, being in this what's going to be a sort of a two-and-a-half-block radius of uh, hotels, restaurants, and uh, an incredibly beautiful arena? Yeah, I mean, world-class arena. Um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be exciting for the city, I think, to, to host it, even though the fans won't get to show up in the rink, but, um, I don't know if you've been there recently, but with a great hotel, yep. you know, that's attached to the rink. Um, and then my understanding, that's going to be the main hotel for the players, uh, and maybe some of the coaching staff. So, and then some of the, uh, other staff will have to stay at hotels, but they're like, that's, that's a 10 minute walk at most. Um, so, uh, I think it's going to be great. Uh, and then I, I, I also understand they, they made a fairly aggressive bid of, that would include, you know, some golf courses and, uh, and other things to keep the players occupied. Um, because let's face it, you know, the players are going to have a lot of downtime and, uh, you don't want them just sitting in their hotel room. And as long as it's safe, uh, are there other things that they can, they can do and occupy their time and, and relax. So, um, I think it's going to be great for everything. I'm excited I'm excited for the city to get that chance. I'm almost obviously biased, but it was interesting to sort of follow the media reports and then see Vegas was a lock and, and Vancouver was a lock. And, and there at the end of the day, Edmonton's still standing. So great for them. And what was it like working for the Oilers? I mean, you've worked for now many Hall of Famers, right? I mean, Kenny Holland, Kevin Lowe, uh, you know, Slats, um, you know, it, just to be uh, in that storied franchise, see the building of Rogers Place from an arena I actually loved in Rexall Place, especially the sight lines from the press box, um, to, to work for the Oilers and now to, to take this leap. Yeah, I mean, I, well, I, I, a lot of what I have in my life is due to the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, they gave me the start. Glenn Sather gave me the start. And, uh, and then Kevin Lowe hired me as his assistant and then hired me back when he was president after the Columbus tenure. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a debt of gratitude to Glenn Sather, Kevin Lowe, Daryl Cates, all the people there, Cal Nichols, Patrick LaForge. And uh, it was great to be around those people. It was always a thrill. 
Uh, you know, when Wayne Gretzky would come around or Paul Coffey. I knew Paul Coffey because I played a year with him in junior hockey when we were both very, very young. But to meet some of those guys, Glenn Anderson, Mark Messier, and uh, just, just the, you know, the, the character. I learned so much from Kevin Lowe and, and uh, just about doing the right thing. And you could tell I, I was so I was ecstatic when he got nominated to the Home, Hall of Fame last week. But he was such a selfless person and a team-oriented player. And, and you could see that as a general manager, too. He always was doing the right thing and very unselfish. Craig McTavish as well. So um, it was great. My, my, I, you might remember across from Rexall, there was this one of my favorite murals ever was this. Uh, and now for the other hand, they showed a hand with five Stanley Cup rings. And it was now for the other hand. And, and uh, one of my regrets was 06. We went to game seven. We would have had that first yeah. one for the other hand. But uh, we came up short against the Carolina Hurricanes. Yeah, yeah. I covered that series. It was an incredible series. The, the thing I remember about that series was after game six, it was so hard to get to Carolina um, that they put <laughs> us all on a charter. All the media. So we like filed our stories like at the gun and basically got on this bus and took a charter plane and landed in Raleigh in, in early in the morning. And uh, it was a it was a, a man. It was a, a awesome, awesome series. That was one where you guys faced a, a immediate adversity right early in the series when you lost Rollison. But then your goaltending came up big the rest of the way. Yeah, it did. UC Markman played well and losing Dwayne. He had carried us. The th the, your travel story is really interesting because if you remember, I think we played a Saturday night game six in Edmonton and we played, it was one of the best games I've ever seen us play. I think we yep. won four nothing or something. And it was like, we were clearly the better team. There was no contest. And uh, so that made us feel pretty good going into game seven. And then we got to the airport on Sunday morning. We're both taking charters and Car I see all the Carolina players sitting there and their charters delayed. And I'm thinking, oh, this is really good. And I mean, they're, <laughs> they've had to come and sit here at the airport for an extra couple hours. And this, this is trending well. And then we got there and, and, uh, and the game started and lo and behold, they were the better team. They did. We could have won the game. If you remember, we, we, yep. Sandy, who had a great playoff scored early in the third and we had a couple more chances to make it two two, but uh, they were the better team on game seven and they deserved to win that game. Yeah, it was just an awesome series. Uh, uh, a lot of also, I remember it was my first uh, t uh, year in Minnesota, and there were just so many Minnesota uh, angles on both teams. Uh, so it was right. a, a cool, yeah. uh, cool story uh, storylines for me to cover. Um, you know, when I when I listen to you talk, Scott, you talk so excited about uh, you know the teams that you were on, uh, Edmonton, Columbus. We talked about your junior uh, career, also where you were just an absolute star with Bernie Nichols and Kingston what will it be like to, to sort of lose that? I mean, this is going to be the first time in your life that you are all of a sudden not affiliated with a team. And, you know, everybody's equal when you're the commissioner of a league. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, all, all, all my life I've been on teams and, and, and you're trying to win something, right? You're always trying to win. You're trying to win. And, and winning comes at the expense of somebody losing. And, uh, and it's different now. You've got, I think I heard uh, Gary say one time, I, I love all 30, 31 of my teams, or the 31 in the HL. So that's sort of the mindset I'm going to have. And uh, and I said, as I told the search committee, you know, I'm going to I'm going to do what's in the best interest of the league and the teams. And sometimes that's not going to be popular. Sometimes uh, I'm going to have people uh, mad because of the decisions I make. But as long as I can really say to myself, honestly, Mike, that this is the best interest. I really believe that. Then I'm going to, I'm going to be fine with it. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy, 
But uh, this is more of a, instead of a sort of a selfish pursuit of trying to win the Stanley Cup, this is more more of a selfless job, I would say, and uh, a bigger picture job. And you're trying to serve the game and serve serve the AHL and serve the sport and all those great things. Yeah, and uh, I highly recommend Minnesota Wild uh, fans uh, getting in their cars uh, when fans are allowed in the building. Uh, taking that three-and-a-half-hour drive south goes real quick uh, to Des Moines. It's such a great atmosphere to go to a game in, in uh, Wells Fargo Arena down there. I've gotten to a bunch because the, the Iowa Wild have been in the playoffs, and I uh, went down there for a Parisi rehab game as well, and it's just a great, great uh Great town, Des Moines, so I highly recommend people go there. Let me just ask you a couple more questions, Scott, about about yourself. I mean, again, you grow up in Toronto. You go on and you play for Kingston. You're just an absolute stud there, 140 points in 66 games. You go into the uh, to the Toledo Gold Diggers. I believe it was at the Islanders organization in the IH, IHL at the time and scored yeah, 120 we, yep, points in 71 yep, games. Yep. So what was that like? Uh, yeah. Kind of, you're in, you're suddenly entering the NHL at a time that the Islanders are a dynasty. It had to make it very, very difficult to go up and and wind up making, uh, you know, living your NHL dreams. Yeah, I mean, I I, I signed with them as a free agent, and, I, and as a free agent, I didn't have a whole bunch of teams uh, coming after me. So um, I was very happy to get the contract and uh, and just worked my way up. I managed to play I think 18 games there and uh it was sort of at I joined them in the middle of the run and so by the time I was getting my chance they were kind of at the end I think I got my first games in 85 um at the middle of the 85 season then the beginning of the uh, in, in October of 85 so uh they were getting a little bit long in the tooth it was the end of their run and it was a thrill I can't you know it was it was a great thrill to play with those guys and and see those guys and, and, and just to be coached by somebody like Al Arbor, uh, that was, that was a, a great experience as well. So, um, but I, I can tell you the, probably the most fun I had was when we went that year in Toledo, when we won the championship, Dirk Graham was on that team. Um, and uh, some Chicago and Minnesota fans. He started in Minnesota actually. Mm-hmm. I would, would remember Dirk still a good friend. And, uh, and we had, uh, we had a terrific team and we had a lot of fun that year and ended up winning a championship. Yeah, Turner Cup, and uh, uh, my cousin actually played in Toledo, and I know he enjoyed it. Uh, that was in the ECHL. Um, let me just ask you, I mean, Al Arbor, do you have any funny stories? I'm sure that when you uh, scored uh, four goals in your first four NHL shots, you probably thought you were a big shot at that time. I mean, uh, Al probably had a couple <laughs> things to say uh, to you. Uh, well, he, he as you, as many know, that he, well, he didn't say very much. He was kind of stern. <laughs> and uh, and my first game, uh, I scored two goals, but we lost. We lost to the Detroit Red Wings, uh, uh, 5-4. And, um, and I remember the next day at practice was very intense, probably the most intense practice I ever had. And because you had people like Dwayne and Brent Sutter that, you know, didn't accept losing very, very well. So he was – and Al was pretty stern too. He wasn't very happy. So uh, – so all I remember is him uh, as as he was going off the ice after practice. He saw me and he skated by me and he just said to me, "There's nothing to this game, eh, Scott?" And that was about <laughs> all he said to me the whole time I was there. So <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, yeah, we just lost uh, Al Arbor recently too. Um, you know, lastly, uh, l- let me ask you about uh, your family. I mean, this this comes at a time it actually works out well, right? I mean, your your wife is a Hotshot lawyer in uh, in Columbus, I know. Uh, Mike Arias always says that you're the second best lawyer in your household. But it also comes at a good uh, good time because actually you're sort of empty nesters now, right? 
Yeah, it's it's the perfect time. When when I got let go by the Blue Jackets, we had established roots here. Our kids were right in the middle of, you know, middle school and uh, and high school. And and Antoinette, my wife, and I said, well, we're we're going to stay here through the kids' schooling. And if I get a job and I have to leave, then I'll leave and I'll commute. But as many hockey people do, and uh, I was I was fortunate enough when I rejoined the Oilers that I could keep, really keep my base here in hockey. Some jobs, and that was the case with me. It didn't matter where you. Uh, where you live because you're traveling all the time you've you've lived that life so um so uh so now uh, my youngest daughter she's uh, graduated from high school and she's off to college next year so uh we're going to uh it's a good time for us to move it's going to take a while we're just we're just getting ready to sell the house and uh and uh, my wife was uh, got good news uh, last month that company there she's working for is going to let her work remotely from Springfield so awesome. it's all coming together and she'll join me uh, when I get there and you know it'll be, it'll be probably the fall or the winter but it is it's the good time for for our family for to do this so I know I know that you grew up a huge huge Cincinnati Reds fan so it's a total coincidence you wind up in Columbus you're still based there and and uh, and grew up this Reds fanatic yeah I mean I, I was I remember getting the job in 07 and I'd come here and, and I realized that the Reds were on every day on television. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so that was a treat. Yeah. And, uh, and I love the Reds. I don't know why I started liking the Reds in Toronto. I always loved baseball, but I think I had a friend that was a Cincinnati fan and the Reds were good, as you know, starting in the early seventies and, and, uh, watched the big red machine. And, and, and as a matter of fact, my dad for my birthday every year would, get tickets to uh, weekend games in, in Cincinnati. We'd take the 10 hour drive down here and watch the watch Rose and Morgan and bench. And that was always yeah. a huge thrill for me. And, uh, and now we're going to have, it looks like we're going to have baseball in in about a month. So that's, uh, that's good for major league baseball. I remember when I was a kid, the, the, you know, the big red machine, I mean, Johnny bench used to be, I think it was like, uh, this week in baseball, he'd be on there every single week. Uh, <laughs> it was just, it was, it was. I think it was Mel Allen, right? That uh, that hosted yeah. that, if I remember. And um, another, I, I was a huge, like I was a big Expo fan. But we used to go to Mets games when George Foster played there, and I used to go to batting practice and I'd just try to get uh, George Foster's autograph. And it was, uh, th- those were the days in baseball. Yeah, it's it's so different now, Mike, because you can't tell. I mean. You, you, you'd get a Saturday afternoon game on NBC, maybe an ABC Monday night game, and that was it. That was all you could watch. So, And the Reds, I was lucky because the Reds were good enough at that time that you know, they'd get the national games. And that's what, for me anyways, that's why the All-Star game was such a big deal because you got to see all the stars um, in one place at one time on television. And, and uh, it was just, you know, that was must-viewing every Every I think it was always on a Tuesday night in July. Must viewing for to watch the All Star Game, and it was a big thrill growing up. Controversial question: Should Pete Rose be in the Hall of Fame? Oh wow! Uh, I would say <laughs> I would say no. Yeah, yeah. He used to. Um, so he had a. I grew up in Boca Raton, Florida, and he had a, a restaurant there. And uh, I probably shouldn't tell the story, but he had this restaurant there. And I walked in there, and I'm a young sports writer at this time, and I, he's got this like gift shop at the front 
And I watched this kid go over to him and ask him to sign an autograph. And he made the kid's parents go buy something from there for him to sign it. And I just yeah. like, I, I, I remember I, I was so ticked about it. I wrote this column for the Sun Sentinel at the time. And uh, did you? He did, not, yeah. he did not handle it well. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, what do you think? I know that, you know, the Red, obviously baseball is coming back here. The Reds are going to suddenly play the Minnesota Twins in this uh, cross division little schedule they got coming up here 60 games. Um, you know, uh, the Reds obviously have uh, some good starting pitching, some big bats. Uh, some teams are picking them to win the Central. Um, do you th- do you think this could be a something that happens in a really crapshoot of a season? Yeah, and and you just had it. It's a crapshoot of a season. I think uh, I think you know, given the sixty game schedule, or even if it was a hundred and sixty two game schedule, uh, I would have hope for them. I think uh, it's 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 like goaltending. You know, pitching, 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 and if you've got pitching, you're going to be in a lot of games. And and they seem to have pitching. And uh, and then the, and then the last thing that's true in any sport if you get too many injuries or key guys go down you just it's just so hard to overcome i guess in a short season um it would be the easiest to overcome serious injuries but uh but you can't you got to have a little bit of lady luck on your side for sure yeah no doubt it's gonna be a strange season it's this is one of those years i mean you start hot and you're going to be golden if you start slow. You're in deep, deep trouble. Um, yeah. you know, Scott, last question for you. Again, uh, you're coming into this league at such a weird time. There's so many unknowns about the future. Um, is it hard to get a grasp on that? And what is your vision for for continuing the legacy of Dave Math, Dave Andrews and, and really making this league such a success uh, and continuing to build on that? Yeah, well, my original plan was um, – you know, just to get in and learn for the first five or six months and, and really get a grasp of what it is that the president does and, uh, and, and then learn about the league. And, and then, you know, uh, there, there's some things that I, I'd like to do strategy-wise. But as I said to the staff yesterday, we had a staff meeting on my first day, and I said, you know, we've got to sort of short, short-term our goals now, and uh, the long-term strategy is going to come. But the first thing we have to do is uh, let's take some steps to make sure we're we're navigating the proper way through the, these difficult times and, and we'll have lots of time to, to get over, you know, to, to, to think about long-term strategy. And, and if, if we do have some downtime in, in these, uh, while the season's waiting for the season to, to start, then we'll be able to map out some things. But right now I, I, I just want to get in and learn it and, uh, understand it. And there's obviously going to be some things that I'm going to want to do, but, uh, but we'll, we'll we'll put those on hold for two reasons. I don't know enough about it yet, and and we've got something that's far more important to try and just get us back playing hockey right now. Yeah, well, I wish you a, a ton of luck. I'm I'm a big proponent and, and lover of the American Hockey League. I mean, to me, it's what makes it it, it really does uh, lead to what makes the NHL a success. I mean, referees come from there, coaches come from there, players come from there. I, I'm a firm believer. I'm sure as you, as a former general manager of 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 you, need to earn your stripes in the AHL and develop to wind up being in the NHL. And so you've got a great league uh, that you're now going to be the leader of. Yeah, I mean it's it's a crucial league for development, and and you know a lot of as you know a lot of kids coming out of junior or college get a rude awakening about how good this league is, and uh, you know we've got ninety percent of the players you've heard the stats and uh, and a whole, whole lot of coaches and and uh, officials come through the American League, and uh, I think we had ninety percent, almost ninety percent of the players that played games in the NHL had, had played games in the AHL, so. Um, it, it's an important league, and uh, I know the general managers know it's important, and we all know it's important. We've got to make 
continue to build on what uh, what a great league that Dave and his staff built. Well, Scott, I really wish you a lot of luck this season and during these uh, uncertain times. I got to imagine it's going to be just a a lot of navigation through a lot of uncertainty. So, uh, you know, again, thanks for joining uh, Straight from the Source and thanks for listening to Straight from the Source uh, with Michael Russo. Check out our comments section for each podcast episode on the Athletic app. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to Straight from the Source on Apple. If you click on the show URL, theathletic.com slash straight from the source, you'll get 40% off. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Scott, during what I know is a very, very busy couple days. Thanks for having me. A pleasure.